morning, everybody. How are you? Man, I am so ready for today. I really, really am. Um, I just want to bring some good news to some of you. Um, we have, if you've been here for this series, now we're in week six. And over the last three weeks, we've really dug into, um, the, on the, to- into the topic of money. Um, and we talked about money. We talked about materialism. We talked about all sorts of things surrounding our money and our possessions and our wealth. And the good news is this, we are moving on from that. Anybody excited about that? Like, yes, finally, quit talking about my money. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to replace money and talk about your family, actually. So, uh, so we're going from one difficult thing right into another difficult thing. Now, one of the things that I found in life is that all of us have these like reflex mechanisms, Here's what I mean. Of course, we all have reflexes, and you go to the doctor, and they like tap your... I don't know how they do that. They tap like your elbow, and it, pop, it goes, and you do this, and it pops. We have those types of reflexes, but also when it comes to other things in life, we have reflexes too. Uh, when you hear the word politics, maybe for you, you're like, like, oh. Or you hear you know, the name Donald Trump, and you're like, oh my goodness, again, and the reflex is maybe anger or whatever. Maybe it's joy. I don't know what it is for you. It's like we have these things when it comes to our life. Maybe for you, it's like you hear hip-hop music, and you're like, oh, I can't. Or you hear country music, and you're like, I can't. Whatever the case may be, we have these reflex mechanisms in our life, and sometimes the, when the things of life, they kind of trigger this response in And what I found to be true is this, when it comes to the hard teachings of Jesus, we oftentimes have reflex mechanisms too. I love what John Piper had said, and this quote I thought captured this perfectly. He said, the radical sayings of Christ expose our self-protective reflex. So when it comes to the radical teachings of Jesus, we're like, oh my goodness, what did Jesus mean? Like, did he really mean that? Like, should I just take it at face value? What did he mean? And oftentimes we have this, this self-protective reflex that revs up in us. Or like, there's no way that he meant that in a literal way. There's no way that he meant that in the way that, our, that, that, that I understand it. So it must have been something else. So we tend to have three different postures in these moments. We either look for excuses and say, well, no, 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 he, he, that's just not me. That's maybe for somebody who has like, faith 4.0, but I'm only uh, faith 0.0. Like, I'm just at point one. Like, I'm just not at 4.0 yet. I'm at, like, I'm at faith 1.0. Like, that's for somebody who's like to the, to the higher level in their faith. And we look for excuses. Maybe we look for exceptions. And we say, well, uh, that's just not me. I mean, Jesus knows me and my family's difficult. And, and he knows my mom and he really knows my dad. And he knows my kids. And what would it be like to parent my kids? And we look for exceptions out of the radical teachings of Jesus. Also, I believe this is a, a self-protective reflex. And then the last thing here is, is we just look for an escape. We just look for an escape and we say, no, I, just, I, 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 I don't want to do that. And, and then we use rationale as to why we can't escape. And, and, and then if things get really, really bad, then, then people hear hard truths when it comes to, scripture, to the Scriptures, and then they leave one community of faith only to go to another. And what I've found, uh, and just from my experience of knowing people around here in this community, is oftentimes people escape the hard truths of Scripture to go to another church where they hear hard truths of Scripture, and then guess what happens? They leave that church to go to another church where they avoid the hard truths of Scripture. So how about for us that we just kind of breathe easy a little bit? Can you breathe? Just breathe. 
It's going to be okay. We're in this together. We're going to get into some hard teachings when it comes to the, to the, on to the topic of family. And by the topic of family, I'm not just talking about husband and wife and kids. Uh, because what we're going to see in the teachings of Jesus, and we're going to really drill down on four main passages today, and these teachings of Jesus, these radical sayings of Jesus. But what we're going to see is it's not just for married folks. It's how family then takes this, family can take the center of a person's life to where we're no longer living a life of simplicity. And what we've said all along is that a life of simplicity is to will and want one thing. And that's Christ Jesus at the center. And the thing about life is this. There are so many things that try and take the center. And what I have seen in my years in ministry is family. So many times takes the center. And people of faith, people who have an authentic walk in faith in Jesus, they're not walking in obedience because of something their, their mom or dad said or their grandparents said 10 years ago, or they're trying to honor some memory from many, many, many years ago of like, well, this is just my grandparents' church, or whatever the case may be. Like so many times we get so sentimental when it comes to the issue of family that we neglect the radical sayings of Jesus. So we're going to drill down on these today, and we're going to see what God has for us. So uh, what I also want us to come to terms with is maybe there's something that you need to learn from this talk. Maybe there's maybe there is an idol forming in your life and maybe that idol is family. And maybe the reason why that you are not where you ought to be spiritually is because this idol has not been addressed. So family for you, whether it was as a married couple, as a single person, family that it could be some family line issue. But how about we just kind of rest in this and see what it is that God has for us. And let's all go into it with the mindset of there's something I need to learn. Or there's something that I need to think differently. Or there's something that I need to do differently. Certainly something that I need to believe differently. And I want you to know that I'm not criticizing you when it comes to these things. And even the things that I've said so far, I see your facial expression and you're nervous. No more nervous than I have been all week long to deliver these truths. I tell you that for sure. Uh, there are certain things that I have done. I've been able to get up and speak in front of hundreds of people and not really be nervous. I had one of the most dangerous jobs in the world, working on a flight deck um, at night during flight ops and, and not as nervous as sometimes when I stand before you and I deliver hard truths because I know that these things uh, are what God has for us and I know that many times these become the very tension points in our life that become unsettling. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to go into Mark 3, 31 through 35. Father, we come to you today. And Father, for everyone who is a, a believer and who's listening right now, before we even get into these teachings, just remind them of, of what you've done for them. How you love them so much that you sent your son to die for them and that because of the work of the cross that now these these believers have a peace and a hope they have an eternal life that's that's going to be spent with you in heaven but also we have um, 
and abundant life to be lived out here. And God, we need your graciousness and we need your mercy. I need your, your clarity in my own mind, in my own heart. And for uh, the person who may be here and is just kicking the tires on the faith and who's not even a Christian at all, God, I pray that, that through this you, you would remind them of just how good you are and reveal to them the truth of your love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Well, first thing uh, I want to tell you is this. All through today's message, it's going to be a little different than what I normally do. I'm actually going to give you four main points, and then I'm going to go into the Scriptures. Of course, I've studied the Scriptures, so I know the points uh, I know the points are there, but I want us to sit in these, and then we're going to see how the Scripture answers these questions. So the first point, if you will, and again, there's going to be four. The first point is this. The family of God grows through spiritual regeneration. The family of God grows through spiritual regeneration. The family of God grows through spiritual regeneration. When it comes to a life of simplicity, there should be just as much available for somebody who chooses to chooses or doesn't choose to live their life of being single. And in being welcomed into the family of God, there's no hierarchy when it comes to, well, well, this is just what I have to do. I have to get married and then have kids, and then I can, then I can be spiritually mature. There has to be a spiritual maturity that's avail- available for all people married or unmarried, whether single by choice or not by choice, or maybe single and waiting. But yet, the family of God grows through spiritual regeneration. In Mark 3, 31 through 35, we're going to get to our first, uh, first reading and teaching. I'll give you the context. Jesus had just had this interaction with some of the teachers of the law, and they basically said that he was the son of the devil, right? So they're like, they said that he is demon-possessed, that he's like some, that he is subservient to Beelzebub. Probably not a word you've used this morning, um, it's a fun word. You should use it um, when you're referring to uh, this passage and not maybe like a family member. Be like, you're Be- Beelzebub. Probably not the thing for you to do. So right after Jesus has this interaction with these teachers of the law, and they're, they're basically have you know, their finger in his face, and they're accusing him of all these things. It, one of the commentators that I studied, they said that they believe what had happened was there was just this tense a conversation that was going on. And because of this tenseness, that then Jesus' disciples, they say this to him. In verse 31, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they said to someone, in to call, or they sent someone to call to him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Hey, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you, Jesus. So it's like there was this tenseness that was going on, and then all of a sudden the disciples say, wow, we're going to alleviate some of this tension. Like, hey, did you notice? Hey, there's your family. There's your family. Like, it's going to be okay, Jesus, as if Jesus needed that. And Jesus said this in verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here or my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What Jesus was pointing to is also what John talked about in John 1, verse 12. 
when he's talking about how that when people commit their life to Jesus, they become part of a family. So in John 1.12, there's a mention as church as families, being sons. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, there's another mention of us being a part of the household of God. And then again, in Galatians 6, 10, I believe, is another one. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is, and the disciples think that they're doing him a favor. They think that they are like, okay, good, and now we have this distraction, this tenseness is going to be over. But what Jesus is, when he counters them and he says back to them, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he corrects them and he says, here are my, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and sister and brother. What he's saying is this, family cannot get in the, work, cannot get in the way of the work of God. Family cannot get in the way of the work of God. The disciples thinking they're doing Jesus a favor. They're like, hey, hey, Jesus, hey, hey, your family's here. Your family's here. It's going to be okay. And Jesus, he, he just, he, he takes that, what they say, and they're trying to help, but he doesn't get deterred from his work, and he just drills down on this even more. He just drills down on it even more. Jesus is not being unloving. He's not being uncaring. He's not dismissing his, his family. What he's simply doing is he's pointing to a further reality when the people of God would become the family of God. When the people of God would, would then, after uh, submitting to Christ and the acknowledgement of their own sin condition and asking Christ to save them, trusting that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and that as they commit their life to him, then he invites them to be family. And what Jesus is also doing is he's setting a priority. That the family of God in times of obedience need to take precedent over our earthly families. The family of God, when there's, when there's confusion, when there's distraction, when, when it comes to obedience and actually doing what the Bible says, that the family of God is Christ being at the center. He leads His followers to put Him at the top, and then the earthly family follows suit. So what we said in week one of this series, in case you missed it, is that, that really our marching orders in Matthew 6.33 is to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and trusting that all other things are, are going to be given unto us so we can trust if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and and we we keep christ at the center and there is a discipline side of it there is a community of faith that that we need there is the truth of god's word that we need there is the the grace of god that shrouds every believer that we need and we cling to but we need to Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then by faith, believe that he's going to provide for us. By faith, he's going to provide for our family. By faith, he's going to, he's going to give our kids what they need. By faith, he's going to give us the rest that we need. By faith, we will do everything. You see, family is a great gift, but it's not the ultimate. 
Jesus at the center is the ultimate. Family is a great gift, but it's not the ultimate. Jesus at the center is the ultimate. The idea of family has been defined and redefined many times over, over the last century. And it started out in, in some communal way that the family, and it, was, it wasn't just mom and dad and kids, it was grandparents and aunts and uncles, and everybody relied on one another. If you've ever gone to Lancaster County, you see this actually with the Amish people. They still, they, they haven't, time has stood still in this way, and they live in a, so much of a communal way. Not saying that we need to be Amish. You can breathe easy on that too. The hat just doesn't look good on me. I tried it at Savannah this week, and it just didn't work. Um, really, I did at a hat shop. I'm not even making that up. Um, but it was very communal. Uh, within the last hundred years, it was very communal to where, where everybody relied upon everybody, and then there was a shift within that time to where then it just became the, just the, the, the nucleus family, the nuclear family, where it's just husband, wife, and kids, and then, and then they moved away from their, their parents, and then the parents maybe lived in a different city, and then just only saw them on holidays. And now, in the last 20 years, I believe we would all agree on this, there's a complete redefinition on what family is. So, in that, as family has, this idea of family is ever-changing. I want you to know this, that God's family is forever. And that your earthly family is limited to this age. God's family is forever and your earthly family is limited to this age. So of course there's been changes over the last hundred years. But if we were to be living our life perfectly, and I understand we're talking about the ideal here. and We don't live in the ideal, we live in the actual. But if we were to be living our life in accordance with God's word then at least for us, not the culture around us, but at least for us, we would say, yes, our families have been consistent. Jesus has been at the center. But yes, some of us have, have, we maybe grew up in a generation to where the whole family, everybody was, everybody was more communal. And then maybe you grew up in like the, the nuclear, uh, the, the family's nucleus idea to where it's just husband, wife, and kids. And then maybe in the later generation where family is just whatever you want it to be. But God's family is forever. And your earthly family is limited for this age. So as the culture tries to define what our earthly family should look like, God's family should be solid and never-changing, except to grow more in Christ-likeness. I was thinking about this, and I thought, well, why is it that this is so confusing for us? Why is it that, that we, we oftentimes find ourselves in a situation to where, okay, I, I just don't understand, like, all the implications of family, or maybe we scratch our head and say, well, yeah, I, maybe you could even follow the trajectory that I just talked about, how family, the idea of family has changed. I believe one of the reasons why that this has gotten so complicated is because even within the church, we have sent a message, either intentionally or unintentionally, that your spiritual maturity should follow this normal path of life. That you go to high school, you get a diploma, you move out, you either get a job or go to college, and then go to college, 
And then after you get out of college, then you start uh, moving into the next phase of your life. And one of the things, again, within our culture here is, what is the, the next step after college that's communicated here? What is it? Marriage. They're saying, oh, after you go to college, then you get married, and then you have kids, and that has just become some version of, of the American dream. Like, this is just what you do. And culturally, this is, just, this is just woven throughout our culture, like, this is just what you do. And that somehow, if you don't do that, something's wrong with you. Here's the big problem with that whole ideal. That's not biblical. Uh, again, whether you're married or single, we should all be able to live with Christ at the center. We should all be able to live in Christ's likeness and in obedience to his commands. Amen? That's just, that's just the way it's supposed to be. And yet, I believe in the fabric of, of all of us, culturally, we've just started to believe, well, this is just what you have to have. To where, of course, you have to get married. So maybe people rush into marriage and they marry the wrong person. Or they, they rush into marriage without getting good counsel. Or they rush into marriage and not really knowing what they're getting into, maybe because of some things that they've done or said, then they don't know what they're getting into, and then they end up getting a divorce. But then because the script that they believed is, you have to be married because this is just what it looks like uh, to be productive in our culture, then they get married again, and then they repeat the same problem again and again and again. What if the followers of Jesus just said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to believe that. Instead, I want to live my life with Christ at the center. And if he leads me to get married, that is wonderful. But we will keep Christ at the center of that marriage instead of having marriage being the center, which is what I believe is happening culturally. Another reason why uh, I believe in this, I will go into some passages in the Old Testament. I believe that uh, some of us have even received maybe because of some doctrine or some, some faith practices that we've been a part of that we have uh, believed that we, as our, as our family increases, that we are more blessed, that we're just more blessed. And, of course, kids are a blessing. Of course, I have two. They're, they're amazing. But it, we've kind of bought into this lie. So in the Old Testament, God expanded the nation of Israel through marriage and childbirth into a covenant. And maybe part of your faith background and teachings that you've heard have been more centered on the Old Testament to where it's just this idea to where um, just you, you get married and then you have kids and then you build up the church. And if you're, you have kids and two Christians or professing Christians, they have kids and they're a part of the church as, well, the church just grows. In the Old Testament, when uh, folks would get married and then childbirth... The, because of that identification of being part of the nation of Israel, then they would be birthed into the covenant, a covenant relationship with God. There are several different covenants. The, uh, one of the covenants that I will just briefly touch on is the, the covenant that was connected to Adam. And this is what it says in Genesis one twenty eight. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. This is part of... Uh, the covenant that was through Adam and Adam and Eve. But it was a matter of God blessed them and He said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. There was a, a marriage covenant. And we see this in Genesis 2, 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
So there's a, a marriage covenant. And then there's an Abrahamic covenant. And in Genesis 12, 2 through 3, this is what it says. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Could anybody, maybe if you've read this part of the Bible, realize why this was weird for Abram to hear? Anybody take a guess? He and his wife couldn't have kids. So this was a promise before all that would happen. That even through him, and eventually 14 years later, in one huge mistake in between, but 14 years later, they would actually give birth to, to the promised child, Isaac. And in Genesis 15, 5, this is, the, this is how the, the promise came through Abraham. Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So he says, look up at the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. God was saying, I am faithful. I realize that, that your bride is barren, but she's not going to be forever. I realize that you may be overwhelmed in this moment. And you may think that, that, you're, that, that I've just passed you by and God just reminds him, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he says, so shall your offspring be. So there was this promise that came through Abraham. You see, Abraham, one of the promises of God without waiting for God. Abraham, because to them in their culture, he, he wanted the promises of God without waiting for God. Then Abraham goes out and he has relations with Hagar because he didn't wait on God. Because this, this blessing, this idea of family was such a big deal to him, he says, no, we're going to rush this. God, you must be holding out on me. So he talks to his wife, and he has his wife's maidservant, Hagar, birth his first child. And so much has happened because of that impatience. So much has happened. So many people have died because of that impatience. So much bloodshed, so much hatred, so much violence because of this. But Abraham, and, and I, I believe this from studying the scriptures, I believe that Family was at the center for him. And it wasn't God. He, he, didn't, uh, he wasn't trusting in the promises of God. He wasn't waiting in God. He was just wanting to do it himself. And it was devastating. All, all that happened through him and because of this was devastating. But yet God was faithful. And we know that in the Old Testament, God refers to the nation of Israel through the line of Abraham. And God calls them my people. I'll give you some scriptures. They're not going to be on the screen. You can look them up later if you choose to. So God would refer to the nation of Israel by saying my people. That although Abraham got it wrong, God was faithful to his promise. That his people in Hosea 4, 6, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, Zechariah 8, 8, 
Jeremiah 31, verse 33. And then again in chapter 32, 38. And then in Psalm 50, verse 7. God was saying, you are my people. That as people would get married, and then as they would get married, and then they would, they would have children, these children were brought into this community, into a covenant community. And God would also say several times, he says, and I will be their God. So he says, not only will you be my people, this is your identity, you're my people. He says, but I will be their God. When all of the warring nations were around them, he says, and I will be their God. And you can look in Jeremiah 31, verse 1 and verse 33. Jeremiah, verse 32 and 38. Ezekiel 37, 27. Um, In Revelation 21, verse 3. Or Psalm 50, verse 7. Or Psalm 81, verse 10. And the reason why I share these, and this is an incomplete list, is I just wanted you to know that God was identifying these people. That he was true to his promise. And although Abraham, he chose, he wanted the promises of God without waiting on God and becoming impatient. And I believe that Abram was, he was put in Sarah, or Sariah, was putting um, his family, the idea of family, the ideal of family in the center of his life. And it wasn't God. God was faithful in the midst of that. God was faithful. So God expanded the nation of Israel through marriage and childbirth into a covenant. Into a covenant. The second uh, point, if you will, and I hate even saying point, but is this, as we drill down on, Jesus may call us to be against our fathers and know them as our enemies since he calls us to love him more than them. Jesus may call us to be against our fathers and to know them as our enemies since he calls us to love him more than them. Now let's go into God's word into Matthew 10 and see that I'm not making this up. Matthew 10, verse 34. This is in the the rest of these passages have to deal with discipleship to Jesus. So this, if you are someone who claims uh, to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus, this is what we're supposed to be uh, trying to grow into and measuring our life by what God says. So Matthew 10, 34 through 39 says this, do not suppose that I've Come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What Jesus is saying is we need to be committed to him before we're committed to our family. We can... We can choose the path 
that Jesus wants us to choose. Or we can, in, in this moment, because now we've, we've officially approached one of the hard sayings of Jesus, a radical saying of Jesus. We can, we can either just say, well, my family is king regardless of what God says. Or we can take some extreme and unbiblical version of what God says and then stop loving our family. And yet we're going to choose the path between. God will never lead you to obey one command and then break another. Listen to me. Some of you have, you're living lives that, that you've made choices. To, you're conflicting with what I just said. God will never lead you to obey one command while leading you to break another. He doesn't do that. He's not schizophrenic in what he does. Unfortunately, when it comes to the topic of family, whether it's honoring our family, or a family member, our parents, our kids, um, this, this thing in the, the idea of family being an idol is one of the things that's applauded in our culture. It's just weird in our culture if, if parents don't put their lives on hold to run their kids around to all of the different activities that our kids want to do. There's just a part of, uh, in the fabric of us that just, it just doesn't make sense because our culture is just, we're getting this barrage like everybody else does it, so you're, you, you feel like a bad parent if you don't run your kid around to doing all the activities that they want to do. After all, they deserve it, and, and your job as parents is to make them happy, right? These are the things that we're told in our culture and this is keeping family as an idol or your kids as an idol. And I, I could go to virtually any, anyone who's pastored a church in any part of the country. And I, and I would see these things that I'm going to read to you. So these are some other examples of how family can become idols. Parents who nurture their children not their relationship with the Lord or their marriage. And they do so for about 18 or so years. And then they get divorced when the children are grown because there's nothing to keep them together. Or parents who seek the approval of their children more than the approval of the Lord, so they fail to bring their kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Or families who spend a fortune on nice vacations to spend some quality time together and then to claim to not have enough money to send their kid on a short-term mission trip. Or men who, who abdicate, they give away their God-given responsibility to be the spiritual leaders of the home, settling for just being father of the year instead and giving their kids everything that they want instead of leaving, leading them in the way that Jesus would want or parents who go missing from church for entire seasons because of, you know, Billy's youth soccer season. Or, or the, the daughter's, you know, little, little Sally, her soccer season. And like, well, we just have to put our life on hold. Or committed Christians who, who never dare to invite a neighbor or stranger into their home on a holiday because holidays are for family. Or churches that intentionally or unintentionally communicate that marriage is a necessary step to spiritual maturity. 
or Christians of all kinds who, who will jettison the theology or marriage, the theology of marriage, or even what is to be true when a child says, well, well, I'm gay. And all of a sudden they look at their child and they say, oh, well, well, I just don't know that the Bible is true because after all, look what they said and they seem so happy. This is when family is an idol, is when you just jettison God's truth for a family member. Or when a family member cannot tell another that they are wrong because it offends some sort of honor code. You see, there are times where you have to stand against your family to stand for Christ, but really what you're doing is you're also standing for your family because you're bearing truth before them. So there are times when you have to stand against your family and to honor Christ, and when your life is the contrast from theirs, you're actually loving them more because then they can see Jesus through you. But in our lives, if our, if our lives become like a chameleon in our family and say, well, I'm a Christian, but yet our life doesn't bear fruit of that around our family, what you're doing is you're conveying to your family that you, you, it seems like, well, I love them, but you're actually loving them a lot less. Because what you're showing them is life, uh, life in Christ has not truly affected me. And maybe what you're supposed to display and what I'm supposed to display to the unsafe people in our families is a Christ-likeness that stands for the truth, even if that means we have to stand against our family. And that standing against our family, they will see the contrast. They will see Christ in us. And maybe that could be the very thing that leads them to their own authentic walk with Jesus. Because I'm on thin ice, I'm going to bring another point. Jesus may call us to hate or renounce others. He may call us to hate or renounce others. In Luke 14, we're going to see what Jesus said. Starting in verse 26. Actually, we'll read in verse 25, going through 27, and then we're just going to touch on 33. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and, he, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then in verse 33, he says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is, is intentionally using a contrast. Again, he's not leading you to, to then say, well, now I just need to hate my parents. Or I need to hate my family members in the way that we would think hate. That's not what he's saying here. Again, he's not going to break the, the commandment to honor your father and mother, to uphold another thing. So I'll give you an illustration because uh, this is about discipleship, not family ethics. Okay, this is about discipleship, not family ethics. So I'm sure if you have 
paid attention at all, and if you're a driver and you've been on the interstate, you've been driving down the interstate in your lane, and you, maybe you're driving the speed limit, and then just out of nowhere, a car or a truck just zooms by you, like you're driving, doing your own thing, listening to your favorite song, whatever, you're singing like nobody's there, you're doing all this, and then this car just, it fly by, it just flies right by you. And what is a very common saying in that situation? They passed us like we were what? Standing still. Although you weren't standing still. Because if you're standing still, you probably would have gotten into a crash by then. You're driving, but yet as compared to how fast you were going, it seemed like you were standing still. And what Jesus is getting at here, I believe, and from my study of this, is saying not that you need to hate your family members, but as compared, when you compare your love for him, In your love for family members, there should be no comparison. There should be like like your love is just standing still, although you love them, but yet when it comes to your faith with your faith in God, it should be like you're just going so much faster. Like it should be just so obvious that you're choosing um, and that you're loving God even more so than what you're loving your own family. He's using this drastic example, a guy by the name of Dwight Pentecost, which is an amazing name, by the way, Pentecost. I mean, my last name is Zook. That's like so boring. But Pentecost, especially if you read the Bible, you see it's great. He said this in, in this idea of, of loving and hating, and he uses another scripture reference from Malachi in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 to back this up. He said this, when God said he loved Jacob, he was not expressing his emotion, but rather his will. That God meant he had chosen Jacob. His statement of hatred of Esau was not, the manifest, was not a manifestation of his emotion, but rather of his will. He meant that he had set Esau, the firstborn, aside. And this is what he says. This is important for us. To love, then, is to choose or to submit to. And to hate is to refuse to submit to an authority, to the authority of another. So to love then is to choose or submit to. If Christ is at the center, we're seeking a life of simplicity is to will and want one thing, Jesus Christ at the center. So the love in that way, it's, it's not a matter of emotion, it's a matter of, of expression, it's a matter of volition, it's a matter of what we do. And he says, and to hate is to refuse to submit to the authority of, a, of another. And I believe that's also what Jesus is getting at here. It's that I'm going to love God in such a way that I'm going to choose to submit to Him in all things. And in these moments to where I'm put in a, in a situation where I can, either, I can either submit to my parents and do what's biblically wrong, or I can submit to Christ and do what's biblically right, I'm going to submit to Christ and do what's biblically right. And in this, that it's going to look like I hate them, although it's not hate as far as a feeling, but yet as a matter of action. So I'm choosing not to submit that to that authority because Christ is at the center and he is my authority. So when this goes wrong, it looks like this. God doesn't get the first and last word. When it goes wrong, when we honor our family before God, we 
we also, we can't allow, or we don't allow our family members to go to like spiritual growth events without the approval of a parent. Like you, uh, I don't know about that. Or family trips just take priority over church family, no matter what. Or you, you have, as parents, that you can't allow, or you don't allow your kids to go to Bible college because, because our kids go to state college. Or parents, you don't allow your kids to go on a missions trip after high school or do a gap year. You're like, nope, my kids go to college. That's just what we do. Or kids who can't have a faith of their own because their parents are unwilling to let them. Or a father's words carry more weight than God's words. Any of these things that I've just mentioned, if, if any of these resonate, that means there's a problem. There's a problem somewhere down deep. The last thing we'll talk about, same chapter, or excuse me, same uh, book of the Bible, different chapter. If you could go into Luke 9, we're going to look at Luke 9, verse 57 through 62. And what we're going to see is this. Memories and sentimentalism must be put in their proper place to advance the kingdom of God. Memories and sentimentalism must be put in their proper place to advance the kingdom of God. And this is what Jesus said. In verse 57 through 62, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. There's nothing wrong with having memories. There's nothing wrong with being sentimental. I, I tend to have memories that I cling, on to, cling to. There's nothing, and I tend to be probably more sentimental than most men are, to be honest with you. But... If those things get in the way of your work and your obedience to God's command as a disciple of Jesus, that is an issue. That means that there is uh, some part of family through a memory or being sentimental that is at the center. And Christ is not at the center. The way this looks in, in real life today is you can't go to Bible college or have a career of your own because you're expected to run the family business. Or you can't take bold stands for God because that may interfere with your family's reputation. Or you say, well, I, I go there because that's where my grandmother went. Or being on fire for Jesus is, is seen as being insignificant or certainly inconvenient for the parents' desires. So the parents seek to squash their faith. So as, as we round out this, this time together, I want you to know 
that these truths are hard. They're hard for me. And yet these aren't times where we need to seek excuses or an escape. But what we need to do is we need to actually dig into our walk with God. When it comes to the radical sayings of Jesus, they should not lead us away from God. They should lead us to God. Say, God, you saved me. You obviously want something more for me that I don't see myself. I need you in this moment. My hope is that this, this talk would just be something that would just be a bump for you spiritually. That maybe it would lead you to other spiritual conversations. Maybe conversations around your dinner table. Maybe it's conversations with, with a family member. Maybe it's conversations just you and a friend. Maybe it's just conversations in your community group. But you would go to somebody that you trust and you'd say, this is what I sense God doing. And this has been a problem. I believe a problem in my life. And I need your help. I need your prayer support. I want, to, I want to do what it is that God is leading me to do, but I just simply don't know how. Maybe you need, and you would ask for more of like a, a, a sort of professional counseling, and you would maybe come to me and say, hey, I, I really want to talk through this stuff because I think that may be an issue in my life. These things, when we get into the radical teachings of Jesus, they should lead us further into our walk with God and into the family of God as we try and live in obedience to His command. Family is a wonderful gift, but Christ is the treasure of a life of simplicity. Family is a wonderful gift, but Christ is the treasure of a life of simplicity. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you again. We thank you, God, that you don't just deliver hard truths for the sake of delivering hard truths. You, you deliver hard truths because you want us to conform to ultimately what gives you the most glory and what's the best for us. Ultimately, God, I believe that you, you want Christians today to have less regret, more joy, and more peace. And this is to be lived out with a life of simplicity. And that is to will and want one thing, you, Jesus, at the center. You who took the sins of the world. You who was nailed to the cross. You who were sinless, dying for sinners. And you, God, that on, on Good Friday, you died on the cross as a way of taking the, the, the payment and punishment that is due to us. And as you draw us to faith, God, our response should be submission to your will. Acknowledgement of our sinful condition. Acknowledgement that you, Jesus, are the king. You're the king of our hearts. Thank you for doing a mighty work today and the work you're yet to do. Amen. Amen.